This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Western Wall. So this week's Parsha, which is called Vayetze, is talking about when, when Jacob decides he's going to run for it, which makes sense because he just, you know, stole the birthright. He didn't steal. He sold the birthright and then stole the blessings of his father Isaac. And he's running for it. But while he's running for it, he, go, he has to go to sleep. It's nighttime. He goes to sleep. And he winds up going into this heavy-duty prophetic experience. And he envisions a ladder. Now, what's that ladder? What, what's going on with that ladder? So it says that the ladder was Mutsavartsa, which is interesting. We'll deal with that in a minute. That the, la- the ladder was going towards the earth. And you, you, why would we have to deal with that? That it was going towards the earth. Have you ever seen a ladder going towards the earth? Yeah, it's usually on the earth. Like it's, ladders don't go towards the earth; they sit on the earth. But this one was going towards the earth, and it climbed up to the heavens. And it says that God was at the top. <laughs> now, for those people who like to picture God, that's probably a bad idea because I guess you'd have to put him in a worker's hat and a little belt with like a hammer and a saw. But you know, like imagine God at the top of a ladder. So it's obviously not discussing a physical being of any sort whatsoever. It's just letting you know something. It's letting you know that the bottom is the Eretz and the top is God. Well, where are you? Where are you? Well, you're, not, you're definitely not on the Eretz. You're not on the earth. Because on the earth would be bad. You're on the ladder. Every one of us is on the ladder. Some, we're all at some point on our climb. And we're climbing up. That's what we want to be doing. Now, we're going to handle first, why does it say it's going towards the earth? Why towards the earth? So the reason it says the ladder's going towards the earth is because the, is because the earth keeps going down. The earth keeps getting lower. So if the ladder isn't extendable downward, everyone's going to fall off the ladder or never be able to get on it in the first place. So what does it mean the earth keeps going lower? So what it means that the earth keeps going lower is that there's, there's a principle in Judaism. It's really a principle anywhere in the world. Is, is called, it's called Yerida Tadurst, or Yerida Tadurst. And what that means is with every generation, you get further from Sinai. Sinai is like a, see Sinai like a bonfire? And the further you get away from Sinai, the colder it gets. So Sinai is the fire, and the, every generation's further away from it. So... That means that the ladder you would climb, let's say, if, let's say you lived a thousand years ago. So now, meaning your next door neighbor is the Rambam. You know, you knew Rashi. You pray with these people. You study with them. You realize what level of the ladder you're on. And, and someone in that generation to get on the ladder, you know, obviously they'd have to throw a few rungs down because they're not Rashi. They're just starting their process. They're starting their path. You'd have to throw some rungs down. But a hundred years later, when there is no more Rashi or Rambam living, there's no, it's not that generation, so you've got to throw a few more rungs down there. And as you go down all the way till, you know, let's say the 1900s, 19, let's say after the World War, 19, 1950, let's say. So then, you know, the ladder's going quite a bit down because we don't have anyone around like that. And, and the Nazis killed some of the most important ones of that, 
of that generation. Yeah, Nazis killed some of the most important rabbis of our in, of this world, and so and so the ladder's got to come down many more rungs for anyone being raised in the 1950s. Now, here's the problem: is that you got to be pretty good at putting rungs in. You understand whose job is it to put rungs in a ladder? <laughs> Definitely not a shim. Whose job? No, you wouldn't know the first thing about putting a rung in a ladder. Yeah, the rabbis. The rabbis' generation, their job is to put a rung in a ladder. But because we'd been through such hell, the rabbis were like doing somersaults backwards at the time, after the war. The rabbis were doing somersaults backwards. They were, if they're, first of all, they were either dead or barely alive after the war. And, and if they were barely alive, so what happened was the people who were on the ladder in Europe came to the, these rabbis, meaning the ones who stayed. A lot of them left Judaism too. They only survived physically. There's three types of Holocaust survivors. Physical Holocaust survivors, spiritual and physical Holocaust survivors, and then the third time, kind of like super rare. There was a woman named, uh, oh, she started that thing, Ashrenu, I think it was called. R- young Rice. She was a triple Holocaust survivor where she had not only her body, but she had her spirituality and she had her, her soul, so to speak. Meaning, when I say her soul, meaning her sense of self. It's very hard to keep your sense of self after years of torture. Yeah, you, you being a healthy emotional being, very hard after the war. That's why all the people who started Brooklyn to show those Nazi bastards who started the, the Brooklyn world of Judaism, like in other places too. London has a little enclave and Belgium has a little enclave and Israel had its, you know, its enclaves and they, um, they showed those Nazi bastards. But those were all double survivors. They survived with their body and they survived with spirituality, meaning Judaism. But the sense of self, forget about it. Like, don't ask for that. You know, and that's why you'll meet today. You could ask, you could ask a lot of Hasidim and Litvaks from Brooklyn or from, or from Lakewood or from Muncie or whatever and ask them if their parents ever said, I love you. And they'd look at you like, nah, no, I love you. It's coming out of my parents. Lots of love. Lots of love. I love you wasn't amongst the uh, expressions of love. And the reason is, is because you got to have an I to have I love you. Without no I, you can't say I love you. You know, and uh, I once had a group of uh, Hasidic men in their 40s. Once I had a group of Hasidic men in their 40s. And uh, I was teaching, it was a marriage class, and I asked them, so when's the last time any of you said I love you to your wife? So one of them was very proud of himself, and he should have been, because he won the, he won the, the uh, he beat all the guys in the room. There were about 35 guys there. He beat them all. He said 10 years ago, 10 years ago, he told his wife that he loves her. And so everyone was so proud of him. All the other men were like, not bad. And I'm sitting there going like, oh my gosh. And, and he says, but you know what I said, Rabbi? And I'm like, what do you mean, what did you say? I just asked. Who said I love I figured you said I love you. He said, no, no, that's too much. I said, you are loved. That's all he could get out was you are loved. What's wrong with these guys? Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Hitler? Yo! It's that that's a. Do they love their wives? Are you kidding? Of course they love their wives. Why can't they tell their wives they love them? I'm not going to go into the details, but I did mention 
I'll mention it one more time that someone who, listen carefully, someone who goes through torture has a psychological thing happen to them that's called disassociation. Repeat that word. Disassociation. It's something you kind of wish emergency workers would have if they had to run in here for an emergency. You don't want them overly associated. You want them working professionally, not freaking out about you. You know, you want them just doing what they should be doing to save your life, not overly associated. So disassociation is a move human beings make. Hopefully they make it voluntarily. Like, for example, we all disassociate when the dentist comes at our, at our gums with a needle. You know, no one's hanging around for that. We all just kind of put ourselves on the side for a second and beep. And then we're just like, ah. And, the, and then you reassociate quickly and then realize, you know, the worst is over. So, anyway, but disassociation, the, anyway, but that's what this guy said is, you are loved. You know? And by the way, these people are full of love. There's no lack of love here. There's plenty of love. But, uh, but being able to express it is, comes rougher. Most uh, the language of love, mostly of Holocaust survivors, is gifts and service. Gifts and service, which is beautiful. Who doesn't like gifts? Who doesn't like service? You know, but they'll do anything for you. Those people. I mean, I. You know, you guys know there's something called. Uh, uh, what's that? What's that thing called? Uh, where you can put on an app and you get a ride. Uber, Uber yeah. So there's there's Uber and now there's Lyft. Yeah, and, you, and uh, so I have a third one. The third one is you go on WhatsApp status and you write, who can take me from here to there? And every single time you'll be picked up by a Hungarian Holocaust surviving person, meaning it'll be already three, four generations from the Holocaust. But they, because what they're trying to say is I love you, but because they can't, they pick you up and take you somewhere. You know, and... <laughs> That's that's how they work. I had a guy who tried to give me both. He uh, when we got there, he 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 handed me two hundred dollars. Yeah, I wouldn't accept it, but he handed me two hundred dollars. I'm like, what's two hundred dollars for? And he's like, well, I know you charge two hundred dollars an hour. And I'm like, I just asked for a ride, bro. You know, he's like, yeah, but we spent an hour together. I'm like, keep it. You know, keep your money. And, but like this guy was so Hungarian that it was like the ride and the 200 bucks. And then, can you imagine getting paid 200 bucks everywhere you go? <laughs> I just travel around New York all day, you know. Like, who else wants to take me somewhere? So, anyway, uh, what are we talking about? How do we get on this? Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder. Yeah. And we finished. Oh, he mentioned psychedelics. Who's her? Oh, you were sending WhatsApps? No, no, no. When I came in, she's like, you missed the best part. Oh, you like the psychedelic conversations. Yeah. We, have an, we have a YouTube psychedelic class that you created. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you said, what's the connection? You asked me a question. What's the connection in prophecy and psychedelics? And I gave a whole class. Was that you? Sorry, that was him. He has the good question. Uh-huh. He has the good Jacob's ladder is going towards the earth. Because you got the rabbis of the generation got to figure out the generation and add rungs. Um, what you guys missed is that the Torah says that the ladder was going towards the earth as opposed to on the earth. You ever seen a ladder not on the earth? It has me on the earth. It says towards the earth because every generation goes down. And the ladder to Hashem, remember Hashem's on top. 
the ladder up to Hashem needs rungs for the generation. That's very far from Sinai. And so the rabbis' generation put the rungs. But what happens, someone tell me, raise your hand for review. What happened after World War II with the rabbis putting in rungs? What? Yeah, they were just doing somersaults. I mean, they were like flipping around like after the war, like just trying to get their bearings. Now, those rabbis, those greats that survived the war, were um, um, had big communities, and all those survivors just kind of went like vroom, back to the rabbis, and they built their communities. But at the but there was no rungs coming out for the the other, you know, ninety percent of uh, let's say American Jewry or British Jewry, or there was no rungs being put in for anybody. It was like. It was, it was more like a line was drawn in the sand where there were the, the survivors who say, there were the survivors who said, we're going to show Hitler with the strongest Judaism anyone's ever met. And then there were the other ones, which was 90% of them, the ones I'm from, were saying like, we are going to like wash ourselves of Europe after the hell that happened there. We're going to wash ourselves not only of everything bad in Europe, we're going to wash ourselves of everything in Europe. And we're just going to start over, and we just can't wait to have American kids with American accents and big cars and lots of money where no one even remembers Europe. And I was raised by those people. You understand? And that's called the American dream, which in Judaism is called the American nightmare. Because your kids wind up being named, meaning your great-grandkids are going to wind up being named Biffy, or Chris, and and then it just the American nightmare, you know, is basically in full force, and that's going on. I mean, the American nightmare is so complete and total that it's it's just ridiculous. And and any guilt they had that generation, any guilt they had, the few that made it to Hollywood, made movies like the Jazz Singer, and and they, they there are a whole bunch of other ones that uh, Fiddler on the Roof. What's everyone just loves Fiddler on the Roof, right? If I were a rich man, da, 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 da. and everyone just loves that movie, that play. Except no one, everyone forgets to notice that the whole play is about uh, some idiot named Tevia, who's an absolute like sand for brains, nothing in his head, with like how many daughters? How many do you have? He only had five daughters, and you watch each daughter assimilate. And it's just Hollywood's dealing with their guilt through through the art form. Just Hollywood. And the last scene of Jazz Singer has, uh, I forget the name of the guy who singing, uh, what was the name of that? He was, a, he was an actual musician. The, uh, I keep looking at this lady because she's like closer to my age at least. But <laughs> she doesn't know who the Jazz Singer is. Uh, whatever. So anyway, at the end of the show, it's him singing. And there you see in a black hat and a long coat and white beard, ten rows back, is his father, the rabbi, going like this. Meaning, I, I forgive you for throwing Judaism into the toilet. I forgive you. This is how, there's a bunch of movies, there's like 30 of them. Like one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, of the guilt of Jewish America. Well, the funniest thing is that we put the goyim up to watching these things, but I guess they identify because you know, like if you came from uh, Taiwan and or Japan or and you got the American dream, so you okay, well, 
no one's going to show this about a Japanese kid, but at least we'll identify with the Jewish kid who left all his tribal ancestry. You know, left it all in the in the garbage. It's always pardons. There's always a pardoning in the end. I don't remember the end of Fiddler on the Roof. I, I watched the play when I was a little kid. What happened in the end of Fiddler on the Roof? He walks away from He walks away what? No pardon? No. Oh, everyone else pardons? Okay. I like movies that can leave a little tragedy in it. You don't have to resolve every film, you know. It's so trite to have every film resolved. So, anyway, good for Tevia. So I guess he wasn't such a big dope. But, um, by the way, even if someone's kid leaves Judaism... That everything I'm talking about of like not pardoning them, you don't pardon them. There's no pardon for deserting your people. We don't pardon that. And what we do do is we love them. We love them. We accept we don't approve. High five. That's right. We don't approve, man. There's no pardon for this. But we accept them. And they got free will. They're making their choices. And you've got to respect the choice of a human being. Yeah. All right. So back to Jacob's Ladder. So check this out. <laughs> You're just drinking milk straight out of a bottle? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what happened is the ladder, Jacob's ladder, had no rungs. All those people just totally biffed. You know, they tried to get on the ladder and they didn't even try. They just, it was. Just, I think. I think those those people added Vaseline to, to the actual rung, the the what do you call the posts of a ladder? Huh? <laughs> so it was like no rungs, and it, the whole thing's just like you just face plant. Yeah, but um, anyway, but once the Jew, once American Jewry got their bearings, so then there were rabbis who like I mean think about it, how long's a generation? So let's say twenty years. So throughout world history, you have twenty years to figure out where to put the rung, right? I mean, you got to be pretty dense to be a rabbi and didn't figure out where to put a rung for twenty years. You know, interacting with the generation. But after the war, a generation was no longer 20 years. Think of what the world was. This was now the Industrial Revolution at its height. You know, it was just like, you know, everyone's driving around in cars and money's being made. Everyone's now moved to the cities from the farmlands. And, the, you know, everyone's now living in the cities. And, and you know, that's when fathers were taken away from boys. And, and we started getting raised by women. And, and, the, uh, and you know, that was, the, that was the end of so many different things happening in the world. So the generations were just moving down and down and down fast. And so it wasn't 20 years, but a rabbi had, let's say, 10 years, which you got to be pretty dense not to be able to put a rung in in 10 years. But there were dense rabbis, and they didn't put many rungs in, but there were some great rabbis who did. One of those great rabbis 40 years ago was, uh, over 40 years ago now, was Rabbi Noah Weinberg. The Bavitcher Rebbe was great at installing rungs. 
in the in the ladder, and there were some real Torah greats who were rung. They put rungs in that ladder. You know, they knew how to do that kind of thing. And um, and then, uh, but the problem is things started speeding up more because think of the difference in 1950 and 1970. It's a massive difference. So you would say by 1970, a, a generation was probably five years. Meaning, meaning your finger could be on the pulse for five years and then you've lost it. Unless you've been the kind of person who's just constantly seeking street credit. You know, like your real street rise guy. As a rabbi who knows all of Torah, that you could now install rungs. So there were still some who could handle a five-year turnaround for a generation. But then came the 80s and the generation turned out to be about a year because things were moving real fast then. But nothing moved quicker than when they came out with internet. Because internet all of a sudden sped things up a lot, a lot, a lot. And a few years later with smartphones. And, and then after a while, so one great rabbi, he's one of the great rabbis of our generation. He was a real rung putter. His name was Rabinovich. Uh, he's the rabbi, uh, he was the rabbi of the, of the town called, called Lugano, Lugano, Italy, in the Swiss Alps. Uh, today known as the Biala Rebbe. There's many Biala Rebbe's, but he's the, the Zucking. He's from the previous generation before every Biala Rebbe decided he was the Rebbe. So he was, he was the Rebbe at one point. Uh, you know, and, I mean, there were probably two or three then, but now there's like ten. And um, this great man, you know what he said? He, uh, by the way, I'm, I just got to give one caveat. He said this over a decade ago. You know what he said? He said that, he said that a generation is one hour. Ten years ago, he said the genera- a generation is an hour. Every what? <laughs> Ten seconds, maybe. I don't know, but it's like, who's left that can put in those rungs? What does that mean? That the generation is an hour. Meaning, whatever you'd say this hour to everybody. Obviously, not each individual, but to whatever you'd think is what you should say to everybody this hour that might give them some traction on the ladder, you're going to have to install a new rung an hour later. Because what you would have said wouldn't really be relevant. It wouldn't have street credit at this point. You know, it just needs need another rung in the ladder. And so, and, and by the way, I mean, you can jump. We get individuals. There's probably quite a few in this room, actually. Here's some jumpers. You know, I don't know if anyone else is a jumper in this room. You're probably a bit of a jumper. No, you jump up and grab a rung. You know, that's what you guys did. But you guys probably had your jump accelerated by different mind-altering substances that tend to throw in a bunch of rungs, you know, for people. <laughs> but the uh, but it, but it is very interesting that that how. It's funny, we're back to psychedelics again, is that how psychedelics install rungs for people. In fact, just yesterday I heard of a, a Hasidic Jew from Jerusalem who's um, from a very old school family, like generations and generations of, you know, the gold coat Yerushalmi is like full, yeah, the full-on Meisharim style. Anyway, one of their kids went way off, man, like way off. And he, I don't know where he was. He was like somewhere in Europe, you know, no payas, no beard, no nothing. You know, he's just like, I think it was in a park in Amsterdam. I don't know where he was. Years later, meaning he was gone. 
Like his parents already were like sat shiv over this kid, and somehow he got a he got a tab of LSD. Just takes one. Just takes one. Twelve hours later, he's on a plane to Uman. <laughs> Stays in Uman for I don't know how long. Eventually, met the love of his life there. Married. Today, that guy is full beard, like down to here. Pears like, and he's in Beit Shemesh with that woman that he met Numan and a bunch of kids, and and he studies Torah and makes a living, and he's like. He's like hardcore. Like he's probably of all this massive dynasty because it's a giant dynasty of this family. Of all the dynasty of that family, he's probably, you know, because there's hundreds of them. I know the, I know the, I know, I knew his great grandmother really well. I used to go to her house all the time, and every Shabbos I would go to her house just to say good Shabbos to her. Um, so there's th- there's really well over a thousand of this dynasty and. He's definitely in the top ten of heavy-duty servants of God in this family. Yeah. So, but here's the freaky thing: is I was teaching a class in the next building over to the kids who were already, you know, like Bali Chuva, and there were thirty people in the class, and it was called uh, Foundations. That's what it was called, and there were thirty people in the class, and. One of the kids raises his hand and says, Rabbi, after what you just said, I gotta share something. So I said, What is it? He said that he said that he was raised Christian. Now this kid's been in our class now for like half a year. No one knew this. So the whole class was like, Huh? And he's like, Yeah, my parents are Jewish, but they were born again Christians. I was raised in church my whole life. And one Saturday night I I went to a party and someone gave me L S D. Someone gave me L S D. Sunday morning, my parents tried to wake me up for church because that's what we did. And I just told my parents, you know, I, I, I just, I didn't sleep all night, you know, can't go. But he laid there in bed saying, I'm, I'm never walking in there again. And that was it. He never did. And he went on this crazy journey until he found God in Torah and was now sitting in my class with the Kippah and Sitzes. Now, okay, so I'm like, well, that was a cool story. Anybody else would like to share? You know, this is, this is Jerusalem, not California. You know, like, who else wants to share? Another guy, no, another guy raised his hand and told the same story. Raised Christian, same exact thing, could never go back into church after that. It's really strange. So I was like, hmm. Let's take a poll. <laughs> you know, maybe everyone here is raised Christian. So I, I took a poll. I said, I said, I realized probably no one else here was raised Christian, but of all our entire class of Balichuva here in this particular level of age, which was a perfect example of all the other levels, of the higher levels, you know, they're all the same kind of kids as all the guys who are now serious Torah scholars. And I said, please raise your hand if psychedelics had a lot to do with your path back to Judaism. Guess what? 28 hands go up out of 30. 28 hands. I was like, huh? What? That's crazy. And guess who the other two were? The other two were the exact person you would say, you should never do psychedelics. 
<laughs> one was like, one guy was like wearing like plaid knickers, like big baggy knickers. He looked like he, he looked like he would be a golf um, caddy, and his name would be like Spalding or something. I'm not kidding. He lasted like two weeks here. Like, I mean, everyone else stuck. That guy was here for like two weeks. I don't know who sent him here. He was here for two weeks and disappeared. And then, and the other guy, I can't say too much about him because I don't want to identify him too well. But, uh, but he's, he's nuts. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> he's nuts and he's, I think, already permanently stoned all the time. But not by, I mean, he's nuts. Like, the guy's certified nuts. And, uh, Dude, this guy was this guy was out there. He was out there, but he was one. He's still. I have this weird thing where I attract crazy people into my life. So he was one of those crazy people I attracted into my life. Yeah, I always felt bad for him though because my wife my wife didn't trust him. So I meant he never got to get in, get into the, he never got in the door. Most of the nuts guys, well, my wife doesn't like any of those nuts guys, but she understands they're attracted to her husband. And as long as they're like somewhat trustworthy and, and I'm in the house, they get to come in. What, did someone comment something funny? Yeah. What, they were right? I love how this turned into acid. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but that was all very interesting. But here's one more interesting thing, is that, is that the tribes of the world... You know the tribes in the Amazon and in Africa and Sri Lanka and, and uh, you know all these different tribes of the world. So they have a direct link to God. They're generally most most of them are not idolaters. Most of them are not idolaters. There are some that are, but the the ancient tribes are usually into God, um, with the exception of like the tribes of India and stuff, which are into you know obviously multi deity structures. And anyway, but these tribes, how did they get into God? How did they discover God? Why do they know so much Kabbalah and stuff? Like, they shouldn't know any Kabbalah. And how do they know God's names? Because when you listen to them chant, it's either a Yud or a He or a Vav or an Aleph, every word. Which is why someone didn't like the song, you know, that song that hit the Jewish world, you know, the one Adam Avishamai. Yeah, because they don't like the Because it's He and Yud and He. And that, you know, obviously tipped someone off. And in fact, uh, I sent a WhatsApp to a musician named Matt Drudge, who was the one who put it, put it out there. I sent him a WhatsApp saying, like, you've been hanging around uh, the Amazon ceremonies or something? Where'd you get that song, bro? I didn't get a reply. But, um, <laughs> but the funny thing is, later, later, it got like an, a ban by the uh, black hat community that maybe it's connected to idolatry. It just so happens that the people who are into these types of chants and these types of uh, medicines that you get in the jungles aren't into idolatry. They're actually quite against idolatry and, and refuse to uh, acknowledge a source other than the source, God. So anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been recognized by them as a spokesman for the Jews, as a tribal spokesman, and I'm brought to you know, major like United Nations-style gatherings to speak on behalf of our tribes and um and so the first time i was invited i i was a little nervous and i said because i don't know who's invited and i don't know if i want my name associated with everyone invited 
And so I asked them, what other religions are invited to this thing? You know, just to check before I agreed. And they're like, no religions at all. There will be no religions there. It's only tribal communities from thousands of years ago who, you know, know the names like you know the names. And I'm like, there won't be any Muslims there? I'm like, no. No Christians there? No Christians. No Christians. No religions. There won't be religions. There's only going to be tribes there. And so I said, I'm in. And yeah, I can show you pictures on my phone as soon as it's off that thing. I can show you pictures on my phone of me like standing next to like... I mean, at one point I'm standing next to a guy who's covered in white. He's an aboriginal from Australia. All he's got on is a loincloth. <laughs> and me next to him. You know? And uh, not to mention some other super funky looking dudes with face paints and giant feather heads. And, and they, when I was speaking... There were translators speak, translating to the different tribal people in, in dialects. They weren't translating it in languages that anyone's ever heard. They were being translated into dialects that only a couple thousand people in their jungle know or have ever heard. And it was really... Here's one of my dear students from New Zealand, Yochanan. You know, you know what, what my family calls you? Yochanan... You know what your last name is? By my family? Amazing. They, you know you're called Yochanan Amazing? Yeah, because I think what happened was that was your adjective for everything you saw happen at my house. And so they just... It stuck. So ever since then, you're called Yochanan Amazing in my house. Which is great, because we have a lot of Yochanans in our lives, and you're easily identifiable with the word amazing afterwards. Um, anyway, but that, that's all interesting stuff, isn't it? And... And uh, how, because why did I tell this story? Who can tell me why I just told the story about the aboriginals and who was showing up to the, these summits that I've spoken in? What's the connection to the boys in the classroom? Yeah, is that these things point you to the truth and away from man-made convention. Now, I do want to give a little something, though. I don't want to be mean to religions. Men are pretty smart, and they have created ways that people can reach a very special place inside called devotion. And devotion is, you know, really what life's all about. I mean, don't you all just want to live in full devotion with your spouse? You know, don't you want to find that place of full devotion? You know, that's a special place. And there have been men in this world, that, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, who have created systems of devotion. Now, they may be forbidden to Judaism. They may be forbidden to the Jewish world. And they may be, uh, you know, not... Um, they may be not, uh, you know, necessarily... You know, certainly a Jew shouldn't be doing those things. But, but you understand that, that there are men... You've got to give some respect to this. There are men who've created paths of devotion for human beings. And, and you have to respect a person who's given their devotion to a man-made uh, narrative. Why? Because, you see, if you devote your heart, like if you go to that full surrendered devotion to something, even if that something's man-made, and even idolatry, which is like, you know, in Judaism, we kill them. You know, it's death penalty without trial, even. For a Gentile, a Jew gets a trial. 
but Gentiles have a zero tolerance policy for for the um, seven Noahides. <coughs> if they break one of the seven, they they don't get a court case. They just you know, if, whoa. Let's see what time it is. I'll wrap it up. Let me wrap it up though, please. So, the um, the uh, when someone's gone to that level of devotion, you should tread lightly. Because they've hit a place that maybe you yourself have never hit. And, and even if they're devoted to a man-made thing, whether it be a religion or whether it be even an idol, you have to be sensitive to someone who's found that rare place. And when it comes to your own heart, you want to be real careful not to lend your devoted heart to anything that's not real. Like, for example, infatuation or things like that, not the place to devote your heart. You don't let your heart near anybody until they put her, if you're a girl, you don't put your heart near anyone until you get an insurance policy on your finger. And, and men don't devote your heart to anybody until you put an insurance policy on her finger. Because you don't just go to devotion without first heavy duty you know, re- readiness to never turn back from that. But now, obviously, if you've devoted your heart to something that's not real or eternal, then, yeah, you've got to backtrack. But far be it from us to make fun of someone or to be disrespectful in any way to someone who's found that place in their heart for even something not, not real. You've got to be sensitive to those people because they've hit that special place that maybe you yourself haven't even hit with the real stuff. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.